Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana I. Ramirez. And I'm Marissa Johnson Valenzuela, subbing for Carla Lamb today. Today's episode is Breaking It Down with S. Brooke Korfman. S. Brooke Korfman is the author of My Daily Actions or The Meteorites, one of the New York Times' best poetry books of 2020 a finalist for the Publishing Triangle's Trans and Gender Variant Lit Award, and the winner of the Fordham University Press POL Poetry Prize, judged by Kathy Park Hong. They are also the author of the collection Luxury Blue Lace, chosen by Richard Zykin for the 2018 Autumn House Rising Writer Prize, and the chapbooks Frames, Meteorites, and The Anima, Four Closet Dramas. Born and raised in Chicago, they now live in a turret in Pittsburgh. We'll start with a poem by Korfman, and then Marissa and I will chat briefly before we play more from Korfman's performance at City of Asylum back in April 2019. Then we'll transition to an interview I just did with Korfman regarding climate change, family, and what it's like being a twin. Finally, we'll talk about what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. Yay! Marissa, thank you so much for subbing in for Carla. It means a lot to us. Carla, unfortunately, had some family stuff come up, and so she wasn't able to make it for our taping today. So we appreciate you being here. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, so before we uh, queue up um, this very first poem from Sam, as we are um, calling Esbrook Korfman, I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on Korfman as a poet or a writer. Is that anything you think the reader should know? I was really psyched to learn about Sam's work. It's very much, very timely and very, very much in conversation with so many folks I'm reading. And so it felt really exciting to be introduced to Sam's work. And so I'm an excited newbie too. Oh, um, well, that's wonderful. All right, well, yeah. let's see if there's some more newbies out there that uh, want to check out some work by Esper Corfman. In a story my mother tells, my name is David, and it is not my fault. In another, another name and another child, and there is no more ambiguity to such a title. A glint at the corner of your eye that pulls you toward the window. A series of stained glass. I am the little miss cursed to drip gems from her lips, the boy whose midnight speaks locusts and dragonflies. Ooh, that's Siri. That was wild. Um, I like put my timer on and Siri said, in my realm, anyone can be anything. Um, which, like true, I guess. So, uh, um, so we'll move Siri over there. I don't know. Uh, maybe this will be a, a dual reading, me and Siri. Um, that's not such a bad blurb for the book. Uh, <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, I am the little miss cursed to drip gems from her lips, the boys whose midnight speaks locusts and dragonflies. They flee from me, these only friends. In this story, I have already ended. In this story, I am everybody's love. Each plague to name, each undoing. Please stay with me while I try. I am not sure how to explain. 
Um, so that's the, the, so my book, um, Luxury Blue Lace, it sort of starts three times. Um, it's about gender formation, uh, intimacy, kind of the challenge of uh, moving between knowing something about yourself and not telling someone and trying to negotiate that telling. Um, so, right, so this idea that in my realm, anyone can be anything that Siri just said, um, I'm like, yeah, sure, great. Just jumping right in, I want to talk about how, you know, we are including this poem despite the fact that it has that delightful interruption in the middle. But I kind of love it because it really speaks to live performance and the kind of little things that can happen during a live performance. I, I really, you know, as somebody who's never met Sam before, I really did appreciate that moment too, where you get to see some of some of Sam's personality, you know, distinct personality comes through and, and they do such a great job of just going with it and embracing Siri. You know, I, I know personally, and I know a lot of other poets, it would really rattle. Siri was a poet in that. <laughs> it's <laughs> true. It was great that Siri had such a good line like that. That really worked. And then <laughs> Sam embraced it and, and just kept moving. And I, I thought, yeah, it was, it was the, like the charmingness of live performance. I smiled watching it and, and listening to it because it gave me, it started to give me a sense of the poet. So one of my favorite things about poems, um, just in general, is the way so many poems kind of consider the naming of things uh, and the way, you know, what we call ourselves and how we kind of unpack ourselves. And I really appreciated the way that Sam began with, you know, uh, you know, I would, my mother calls me David, <laughs> right? And it's this clear moment of, well, you know, even if you don't know necessarily, you know, the poet's name, you know what that moment, it's not David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, and just bringing attention to who you're not, I think is kind of fascinating. And something, a theme that I think continues a lot in Sam's work is, you know, like what is not said or what is not spoken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just so how much, just that formation of identity um, is definitely throughout um, what I've heard and read. That's what poetry can do is sort of go over and review and and sort of contrast and and just question the naming and question the language of things. I mean, inherently that's what it's doing, I suppose, but- um, Yeah, but it's giving it a different spin, right? Because like, you know, a poem like this written by somebody who is, you know, white, cis, hetero, um, person, right, would have a different kind of, what's at stake in being named mm -hmm. is really different. Right. It would land different and it would, it would be less interesting, most likely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because we're kind of used to what that identity brings with it. We're all dealing with the baggage of what <laughs> that identity brings with it. But we're not used to too, there being too many questions compared, you know what I mean? There's not, um, yeah, the, that's like the default setting. So so what's, what's the, you know, um, whereas um, where Sam's taking it is, you know, in a different direction and is, but is, is also, you know, and that's what I was trying to say earlier, like it does feel really, it's in contemporary conversation, it's contemporary debate. Um, it's, it's timely. And I, and I mean that in the best way, not in like a, I don't know, oh, it's in fashion sort of way. No, but no. I mean, I think especially, especially like with yeah. JK Rowling and a lot of that other stuff, you know, like, right. I think that the importance of a trans story that isn't self-deprecating or isn't full of harm or isn't, there's a lot of like joy in the unearthing. I think that, you yeah. know, like, yeah, a yeah there's not one model 
of what it is to be trans, trans or gender nonconforming or identify as they, them, you know, and so that, that is something I appreciate um, greatly about what I've read and, and heard of, of Sam's work is that there is like this, yeah, non, um, this, this space that's being carved out that, that is just, you know, complicating the narrative and the possibilities. And, you know, also having parents, particularly a mother, as, as Sam talks about, I think in your interview, that was trying to do her best and navigate it and like be sympathetic with Sam's, yeah. you know, early childhood dream of, of, and fantasy of, of wanting to be a girl. Right. And then like giving it up as, as I believe they, oh, which is so heartbreaking. I know it, it made me think about, honestly, I, the way I figured out that I was a girl, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but, um, was when I realized I wasn't going to grow up and be quarterback. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because my dad was a high school football coach and so my whole life was you know football and and I I thought I was good at football and I really thought I was going to grow up and be quarterback and then I was like oh no wait I'm a girl and girls don't get to play football and I remember being very crushed and you know that's my first like sort of like introduction to gender and like reg the the regulations of it um yeah I I had yeah. a moment when I was really young and my brother was allowed to go climb on this thing. And I said, I want to go climb it. And my mom said, no, you can't. You're a girl. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, that means I cannot do this thing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's listen to the rest of Sam's okay. performance. Um, and let's let the reader get a, an in on what we're talking about in terms <laughs> of the interview and the rest of the poems. All right. Let's listen to them go. So that's fun. Uh, so the book has an epigraph uh, from Renee Gladman. Um, and the epigraph uh, is from this amazing book called Event Factory. I am saying that things happened that have not been reported, and it is in virtue of those missing things that I was here. Had I spoken of them at this point in the story, I would be elsewhere. Um, so I'm going to read probably four more poems from the book, uh, and then I'm going to read a little bit of new work. And um, when I was thinking about this program about dedication and uh, memory, um, one of the great things about poems is that they're sort of always secretly dedicated to someone. Um, there's a poet who said that better about like every, po- every poem is like a secret love letter or something. Um, so I could have picked a lot of stuff, uh, and some of them will be really obvious. Um, that one, my mom, the first one, uh, I have a twin brother who shows up in the second one, um, a lover in the third. One of the other great things about poets is that we get to say things like lover. Um, uh, and then a, a more ambiguous fourth one. Telepathy. There is the imaginary twin, blue, and the real twin, red, as if we can know beforehand the distinction. We shared a face. We both tried to hide, each named slant for a patriarch. Dysphoria of many kinds, but some more striking than others. Long hair, closed doors, scales, the dragging back from other rooms to the one that breathed softly as it slept. I covered the oak chest in my chest dumped it in the lake, swam back and forth over its sunk weight, endless anchored line. 
I left everyone who had seen it open behind, except my family, who I couldn't. They were polite. They never brought it up. What is normal, everyone asks, and I repeat any answer back. My brother moved forward, became a lawyer. I thought to dredge the chest to see if or where its wood had rotted, left it in the lake. The dead man writes, see, I'm already not crying. That's enough. It's easy to hide as what's expected. The hard part is, later, convincing them that you're not. Now we're apart and have to remember to speak. We assume we have, and recently. Telepathy, like ease, is a lie. And yet we're rarely surprised. Uh, the dead man is Chekhov. I just didn't really want to name him. <laughs> it's like one of those like old white dude citation things. Uh, but I was like, but that's the right idea, so here we go. An orchid. I've begun meditation, but don't know what it should be helping to clear. An ordered array of expectations, a contiguous line outwards. Today, a rainforest canopy of rooftops, impossible brown leaf of a drowning tree. You bloom in my mind, an orchid, a glassed-in relic. The machine in your ear I sometimes hear instead of you. I'm writing in blue because words are not water. I'm practicing desire. Free radicals unspool the atmosphere. Duet. You like to ask rhetorical questions. I like timelines. I see in them the gaps, how I'm on the other side of the river from the grandfather clock in your head. Sometimes I make my own holes, chipping away at the mortar to achieve a handmade effect. My time is the slow construction of an obelisk with an agitated heartbeat. Yours, whiskey and changing orbits. We make both from bricks laid out in the sun all day. This isn't labor, just dabbling. In one timeline, I was alone. In another, you were someone else. I stay quiet among all those throats tuning themselves. When I sing, I lose my voice, yelling with a streak of blue. Sometimes we risk it and perform an exuberant rendition of what's really a very sad song. For a time, my feet were wood, dark oak, and so much cold gathered in them. Uh, some of the poems in the book have titles, and some of them don't. And most of the titles are in parentheses. Um, which is either a brilliant formal choice to link the book together or a cop-out, depending on who you ask. <laughs> you were trying to find the line and its cease. Had you made the decision, or was it made for you? There are many rooms, and you suffer most when you go between them, a tendency, even in language, to uninhabit. But now we know there are rooms, we know it is the going from one to the other that takes it out of you. Blue room into blue room. If only facts would move forward. Ellipses without elision, only gap. Where the skull meets the neck, feeling gathers as a grounding stone. Soak it in salt water, warm it in your hands. Let it settle your flickering form, rough outline. Return it to that sub-occipital space. 
which is like back here. A center or one of them, a knowledge. The stone's river or the river in your spine. Even the ocean is evaporating where it lies exposed. So the other, right, so the, the sort of halves of the program as I was thinking about them were dedication and memory. Um, so I'm gonna read a little bit of some new work um, because I wrote this poem. When I moved to Pittsburgh four years ago, I really sort of came of age as a poet in Pittsburgh, four and a half years ago, I guess. Um, my poetry mentor uh, died just about six months before I moved. Um, her name was Hilary Gravendike. Uh, she wrote a be beautiful book called Harm about her, um, she had a double lung transplant. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about sort of what to do with that, that I had this mentor and she was sort of like became a mentor right before she died and then I became a poet, which is what she was. And so I spent my whole sort of life being reminded that like she's um, not there, but there are a lot of things about her that I didn't know or that I learned slowly. Um, so I'm gonna read one poem and then, uh, well, I'm gonna read, uh, it's a, it's a couple of sections from a long poem that I'm working on. Um, and it's built out of the language in her book, um, although it reads a little bit differently. Um, but so you get a little bit of a flavor of, of her language and also my sort of thinking about um, our relationship. It's currently called tracheophyte, which is the name for um, uh, plants that have vasculature. Um, in part, I'm thinking about her, a lot of her metaphors are about the, the body and breathing in the natural world. I write to offer a seeker. Here lacked something, sought magic, but didn't perform it. Then poetry, a philosopher to take apart a piece or a piece, struck by the cerebral mood, the ways in which absences inform presences. The speaker forgets what we're discussing, a minimalist observing instead. I'll stop, only once I offer him. You have shaped a pair of lungs, begins the poem. Imagine responses, nature, or the root meaning. The poet underwent major surgery, a punctuated tradition about consciousness contiguous to interiors. She, a collective dream. Fact wrestles with vocabularies fractured before us. Our own future expected torments us. The many senses always waiting to be experienced, the perceptions tangled and snagged. A horizon suffers despite imagination, fertile alphabet. The poet is occluded by memory, an uneasy humming as anesthesia found in the end, each line a breath in and out of the hill. Um, and I'm just gonna read a little baby one uh, to end from the sequence. Um, but I want to say thank you to the PSO um, and to City of Asylum for having me. Knowledge. The naturalist lives. A funeral, a little green desk. I first appeared altered. Thank you. Okay, so we just heard you in April of 2019. Uh, it's been a couple of years. Uh, what have you been up to? Has anything happened in the last two years? Uh... Yeah, um, so in April of 2019, my first book had just come out like a month before, a month and a half before that. 
Hit me up um, with that title, please. So that book was called Luxury Blue Lace, um, published by Autumn House Press, which is also in Pittsburgh. Um, and a prize winner, I believe. And it was a prize winner. Richard Seiken picked it for their Rising Writer Prize, um, which is a really amazing series that they've now run for a couple of years. And there's some other really wonderful books. Um, Cameron Barnett's book is in that series, um, A Drowning Boy's Guide to Water. Um, and uh, yeah, you can go down the list and kind of find some incredible books. Um, and Richard Sagan is one of my poetic heroes. So I submitted to that prize because he was judging and it was really wonderful too. Oh, I love that. I once had a mentor say to me, like when I submitted to a, uh, something similar, like those are your judges. And that's always stuck with me, you know, like, oh, it's not that I'm an ex writer, like bad, good, whatever. It's that I hadn't found my judges, you know? Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about memory and climate mm -hmm. and uh, all the things that you're working on regarding, you know, body and the self and the exploration of self in the context of memory and climate. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess let's start with um, climate. We're all pretty much gonna die in a dumpster fire of a planet, right? Yeah, that's, absolutely. <laughs> that's where we're at. Uh, <laughs> that's much what I gathered from the meteorites. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, okay, so let's, maybe I should, we, we kept talking, but I should back up and say, so the other thing that happened since this reading yes. um, is that I wrote a second book, um, which came out in October of 2020, um, right in the middle of the pandemic, um, and which uh, also had a really wonderful steward um, or pair of stewards in uh, Elizabeth Frost, who's the editor at Fordham University Press for the series, but also uh, Kathy Park Hong, who picked the book for the, that contest. Um, and so they were both very wonderful. Yeah. It was wonderful um, to see it recognized in the New York Times. Yes, thank you. That was- That's very fancy, very fancy. Really quite It's gonna a, feel good, yeah. It did feel very good because it uh, the pandemic did make it hard to know what was happening with the book in a different mm. way. It's like one thing, even when, you know, it's, there's a kind of special feeling of doing a poetry book tour where you get like five people in the bookshop and you're like, this is totally fine. Like, this is great um, for a well, reading. But you, you get to see um, those five people buy the book. Yes, you get to sign it and you, you get to see their enthusiasm yes. or not. And no, for real, like yes. going back to, you know, Zoom meetings, like they're great, but also you don't have that interaction. Right. And so you don't know if it landed well or if people are exciting. And I can't imagine launching a book during a pandemic. Yeah. You know what that must've been like. Um, um, me of that oh, so that book is called uh, My Daily Actions or the Meteorites. Um, is there a way just out of curiosity in your head, do you call it the meteorites or do you call it My Daily Actions? Uh, well, I mostly call the book My Daily Actions because the meteorites um, was a chapbook first. Um, gotcha. And it was the, actually the chapbook for the meteorites was the first thing I ever had published before my first book. So can you talk a little bit about why the choice of the double title? Yeah. So the meteorites um, was published in a really beautiful letterpress edition in 2018 by Double Cross Press. Um, and it has these kinds of individual kind of cards um, and they can kind of, you can move them around and you can shuffle them and kind of do whatever you want with them. Um, and so for that collection or for that chapbook, Meteorites was kind of a really helpful title, not just topically, but also uh, it kind of described the organization that it was this mm. collection of things. And then, but then I kind of kept 
writing these little prose poems that were kind of in the same world um, as that chapbook. Um, and so when I was thinking about what to do with them and thinking about the book, what I ended up doing is um, the chapbook became the first section of the book and it's kind of locked in place in order in the book. Whereas in the chapbook, you can, you can read it in order, but you can also kind of reorganize right. it. Um, and so the, the book became about, okay, if this actually does, if it's stuck in this order, then how do you keep going? Like what happens afterwards? If the experience mm -hmm. is not, then you reshuffle it, but then you have to kind of keep going. Um, and so that required for me, a kind of balance between um, the, what am I trying to say? That required a kind of balance between the original kind of production moment, which was like the meteorites and this idea of these discrete objects that had a relationship to each other and a larger sequence. Um, so the, the org title kind of came out of needing to signal this relationship to this other structure, mm. um, but, but having to also indicate a kind of larger sequence or larger habit that had come out of it, which was really a kind of daily writing practice. So it's really conjunction trickery. Yes, it's because really it's conjunction trickery. It's an or that's an and, but is also an or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Conjunction trickery, I see it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, the or is like, a, is right, is like a storied novelistic, you know, like the uh, I guess I'm not a historian in this way, but like, you know, but Moby Dick, right, has this subtitle, Moby Dick or the whale, right? There's this right. kind of like old English novel tradition of that. It's funny um, because I immediately went to Dr. Strangelove. So, well, yeah, that you know, too. Very literary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that uh, there's a little bit, I mean, the book is not so interested in history, literary history in that kind of way, but it is interested in kind of the legacies, right, that we are left with. This is your Well, and I, I would say it's interested, it's interested in history in terms of, I want to say uh, situational language, but situational like sight, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. it, it's sort of a, the sight of history or the sight of unearthing. Is yes. that, was that a fair way? Yeah, I think about? that's, I mean, one of the big differences between that second book and my first book is um, the, my daily actions is much more uh, rooted in, in a kind of location. Um, Luxury Blue Lace is a little more uh, confused. You said memory earlier, it's a little in the memory which kind of throws different places together and it's a little right. harder to figure out where you are in Luxury Blue Lace because things are kind of colliding um, and my daily actions really lives in different Well, and Luxury places. Blue Lace kind of has a little bit, it's more interested in some ways in the familial. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right? And then, you know, especially the segments that we just heard, right? And I was so intrigued by the idea of, of your twin. Um, but I've always been fascinated by the uh, idea of a twin. I used to, I used to date a twin. And I remember I would ask him all the time, you know, like, what's it like to see your mm -hmm. face? You know, to know what your smile really looks like? Like, did you just stare at each other and pose? He would say, no, that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah, <yet. laughs> I think it's, I mean, I think it's tricky. So my, I have an identical twin um, who right, comes up in the poems. Um, and we ha have like at different points in our lives looked more or less similar to each mm. other. Um, but we were never quite 
we got a lot of brothers. We got mm -hmm. like some time, you know, we got a lot of related. We don't always, we haven't always kind of gotten like you must be twins. Although sometimes in different parts of our life we have. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a little bit more slant experience um, than uh, like even if we had kind of like done a mirror pose, um, our faces have a little bit of a different shape actually. Mm -hmm. um, we have a little bit of a different chin. Uh, our smile is a little bit different. Um, so, so it's like close, but it's not quite, it wouldn't, it doesn't actually. Well, and, and I think we romanticize it. We, we think of it as sort of being like the road not taken of genetics <laughs> in some ways. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, like, right. Like here's what, you know, this person would have been like if it had gone differently. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's really in some ways that robs you of autonomy <laughs> and self-determination too. Yeah. And I think for me, <laughs> so. well, I mean, right. And the reason that the twin shows up in luxury blue lace in particular is because um, I have a much different relationship to gender and to my gender than my brother does. Um, and that was true when we were kids. And so it wasn't like this is a thing that we, you know, it took time for genetics to sort of work its way out no, of. No, and, it and, and like it's that unearthing. As children, right, yeah. It's literally the unearthing of a chest, right? And like yes. the way, you know, it's it's something that was there, but that wasn't acknowledged or spoken of. And so I love that metaphor so much, by the way. Yeah. That is delightful, but continue. So yeah, so there were differences early on and from the get-go of how you expressed yourselves regarding your gender. Yeah, um, and then, yeah, and so people really didn't confuse us as kids in quite the same way. Um, uh, actually, the person who I most associate with kind of confusing us uh, is my dad, mm. who used to, you know, it, who used to do probably anybody with siblings can relate to this kind of like Sam, Jack, whoever you are, the kind of like, uh, you know, just whoever, whichever one of you did this, <laughs> like come here moment. Um, so we had a, so our family had a kind of, um, I'm interested in the twinness of me and my twin, but it was not necessarily the operative marker in mm. many ways. Although in some ways, um, the best twin story that we have is that in kindergarten, we used to let each other like cut in line. This makes its way into one of the poems. Um, I don't think I read it at the uh, at this event, but um, uh, but yeah, we used to let each other cut in line. And so they separated us into two different classes <laughs> <laughs> because we would be like playing with one set of blocks or something. And we would just like skip the line and give it to the other twin. Yeah. Um, oh, I just, I remember reading a line and somebody, I, I, I read some, I apologize. I read like 80 books of poetry a year. So I don't mean to forget no, whoever actually okay. said this. <laughs> um, but they said, so, you know, the, one of the most beautiful things about being a twin was the knowledge that they had never been been alone um not even mm. in the womb and I, I always thought that was kind of interesting you know because oh. we do think of ourselves as such solitary creatures yeah and so uh, I was curious that um when you do refer to your brother in the poem it is as, as lawyer um, well and so I, I'm yeah. curious about that dynamic right like is it poet and lawyer uh <laughs> well kind of I mean this is a good question because in part it's a question about the the kind of environment that I grew up in which is a big question shaping question for the book um too uh so my brother is a public defender um mm -hmm. and my mom was also a public defender um until she retired um, 
but there's a lot of overlap because my mom, you know, my mom is also the person who uh, she reads kind of more than anyone that I know. Like she reads a lot of novels. Um, she's written some poetry in her time. Um, she wrote an essay that is in the book or that I kind of manipulated for uh, a poem in the book um, that kind of went unpublished about my childhood um, gender. Um, and, and so my brother and I have kind of each taken these, these things that have been passed down to us. And my father um, has done many kinds of different things in his life, um, including also a lawyer, but was also a, a reporter um uh first uh for a so would um, you say you grew up like middle class in chicago pretty like are we in the suburbs or? we no, we grew up in the city um uh, <laughs> my husband is from chicago and he has really big feelings about people from the suburbs who say they are from chicago do you share yeah <laughs> i i used to but i have mellowed on that a little bit just because i have found it <laughs> not as useful but um but I do think but I think what's tricky about it like what is frustrating is when people when people say they're from Chicago and they're trying to earn a certain kind of clout mm. that is the thing that's frustrating to me is that I'm like I just don't know that it's it's not the city's not so singular that like saying you're from Chicago gets you a specific kind of clout yeah and so you know we and that was in part that was important to my parents that we grew up in the because my mother grew up in the suburbs um of Chicago um and she basically fled she found it mm. she like hated it um uh yeah I mean fleeing the suburbs to become a public defender and a secret poet and essayist right <laughs> yeah that's that's like a yeah that's like a movie premise right there right um and so right and so we and my brother and I inherited like and grew up in kind of a in a an environment that was very that like where writing was the power of writing was really clear in like different ways. My dad was a reporter, my mom was a lawyer, and so they worked with very different kinds of writing. But writing was very important, right? To and both language, of them. language and, right, probably language. mattered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, semantics. Ooh. Um. Yes, absolutely. And I right, imagine then, if they ever disagreed, or if they ever disagreed with you about something you said, that must have been fun. You know, they were pretty good about not being too nitpicky with us, um, thankfully. Um, yeah, because we would have, I mean, we definitely would have lost. Um, although <laughs> my brother, I mean, my brother and I, you know, probably most twins can can relate to this, but my brother and I did, you know, we have a relationship that was for a long time built on fighting <laughs> um, in a particular way that we have kind of grown out of a little bit. So uh, you had a sibling, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and right, a lot of that fighting is a kind of uh, contrarian, pick the language apart <laughs> habit, um, for sure. Um, well, I, I don't think that's for every kid. So I think that speaks something to your vocations. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, right. The lawyer and the and the poet. Um, yeah, but so partially why why the twin shows up as the lawyer in the the book is because um it did it does mark a different I I because I decided at a certain kind of point that I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> um around the same time as my brother who had it was sort of like a I kind of for was like maybe I'll be like that sounds you can whatever do good things in the world that's a kind of simplistic view of lawyers obviously I, but, I um, also flirted with the law right? um, no, there's something but, noble about it I, yeah, I see it 
And, uh, and at a certain point, I decided that that was like the, the way that language worked in the law and the constraints, mm. the way that you had to kind of work within a, a, a thing that was given to you and you really couldn't, you really couldn't like argue, you could argue about interpretations, but you couldn't like on the spot offer a new interpretation mm. in quite the same way. Um, and, and so, so mostly that's how I think about the kind of difference between my my brother, the way that my brother thinks about language and, and the way that like as a poet, I get to think about language, which is that like in a poem, I can kind of do, I can put in whatever I want. And because I've said it's a poem, uh, a reader who, who likes reading poetry will kind of at least give me a little bit of time to, like, to look, kind of go with it for a little bit. Um, and I love that. I love the ability to do that mm. and, to, and to kind of play with that um, intention with the attempt in, other kinds of technical language to really control everything that a reader is going to experience, right? That the, the point of technical languages like the law or medicine is really to, well, is, is really to kind of make sure that everybody's on the same page. That obviously does not happen. Um, right. But um, here is but, an object that should be very clear. No. Right. And in fact, is famously <laughs> <Here's> a... <laughs> obscure. 400 but... pages of precedent. <laughs> right. Um, arguing about how to interpret it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely wild. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about poetry is the way that it centers a lot of the time upon, you know, a, a moment, an image, uh, and, it, mm -hmm. and it really lingers. And yet one of the things that I found as I was looking over your work is that in some ways you're thinking about what's missing mm -hmm. and what's not there and what's Yeah, and I love absent. giving you an image and just running away from it. Yeah. <laughs> I love just like, <laughs> look at this and then moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, 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 you don't have the same anchors that I find in other mm. poets, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. And so I was wondering if you could unpack those choices. What's with the bait and switch, man? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's an excellent question. So, and there's kind of two answers, like one per book. Um, but the real, the the best answer for Luxury Blue Lace, which is most of the poems I'm reading are sort of around that in the in the recording. Um, in Luxury Blue Lace, I was really, there was a, a, a kind of memory that I would not, I knew I would not be able to access, which was, in part because it like didn't happen, which was mm. like in an alternate world, if my childhood gender exploration, if I had felt comfortable enough to really be like, I want to sort of whatever, change my life or something in a particular way, like what would have happened? And that, because the, and there's this is kind of nodded to a different points of the book, but what at the time, um, so this was like the early 90s, what kind of the sticking point was around questions about like trans kids or gender nonconforming kids was really about the body and whether or not the body felt wrong, mm -hmm. um, right? That was the narrative, that's still like- Right, know, the rhetoric of, of being born into the wrong body somehow. Right. Like there's and, a disconnect between you and like the physical self. Right, um, and, and so, and that still has like a lot of sway today, obviously, although also now we have, a lot of more complex counter <laughs> arguments to think about how, how gender works. Um, but I was not, I, ne I never expressed as a child a kind of 
desire for self-harm. I didn't Mm. express a real dissatisfaction with like the material contours of my body, but I did express differently a very kind of like affirmative other wish or a very like, I think the book talks about um, wishing wells and like stars. I made a lot of wishes to like become a girl. And I had this whole kind of gendered experience that was not rooted in the body in quite the same way. And because Mm. it wasn't, um, really nobody knew what to do about it. Um, or if they, or it was, it was kind of like a, yeah, I guess just nobody, I guess nobody knew what to do about it. It's really the best answer. And so, uh, and so then. I mean, I think people were still negotiating the language, right. And people were still negotiating, uh, even just how to understand it. And I think that's why so many well-meaning people do so much harm sometimes, (laughs) I think is because they're publicly negotiating instead of kind of privately negotiating it or trying to figure out what's most, what causes the least harm. Right. Um, yeah, and the, and harm I think is a good way to think about it, which like everyone was kind of confused about what the least harm would be. It was not mm. they didn't sort of under there wasn't like a great understanding of what it would um, of the long term questions, right. <laughs> um, kind of. Um, so uh, so the book emerged out of this question about like at a certain point. Usually I like market to around eight, eight to 10. I basically kind of like gave up this kind of like dream or this wish. I was like, okay, I guess it's not going to happen. So like, let's, mm-hmm. oh, let's that's so heartbreaking. do this yeah. other thing. And this is like part of this essay that my mom wrote that like makes its way convoluted into the book and a couple of other places that I like had a, it's a very, this is like really a sad memory, but it had like an aerial, like a little mermaid lunchbox. They like one year traded in for this navy blue lunchbox that my mom thinks of as kind of like a moment, like a pivotal moment that she thinks of as heartbreaking, but she didn't quite know what to do about because I wasn't mm. ex- I wasn't explaining it to her like what was happening. I just was kind of making these decisions kind of in my life without telling people or like really thinking about it or without explaining it to people. Um, and I, I then I understand as, that completely um, in a different way, obviously, yeah. but um, I, I have experience that resonate with that. So yeah, well, I don't I think, understand. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's like a, I mean, I think kids do things all the time that mm-hmm. are sort of inadvertent. They are, they are making decisions based on information that they have, that they feel very strongly about that, like, adults don't understand that they've sort of well and the, offered the, them in some ways um, the need so. to taxonomize is both like developmentally appropriate mm-hmm. and also incredibly harmful mm-hmm. you know and i see my like i have i have toddlers you know and my right. my kid will be like you know and it's amazing like when you offer the possibility how much it opens up mm-hmm. right and so um you know rafa will say something like um, you know, this is a girl lunchbox. And I'm like, well, flowers are for everyone. And he's like, this is an everyone lunchbox. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, you know, bat an eye about it. And mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also just imagine another parent just as easily going, yep, that's a girl's lunchbox. And just reaffirming something. Yeah. That, and here's, you know, this is um, one of my, 
uh, favorite stories also of my mom is that she used to argue with like McDonald's cashiers over the toys. Oh, of course. Yes. She used to say, say, like, I want one Barbie and one Hot Wheels. And they would say, so one girl and one boy toy. And so it would like take forever because she would, they just go back and forth and she'd be like, I want one Barbie and one Hot Wheels. And the cashier would be like, so when? So they have this whole kind of taxonomical. (laughs) Right. um, And that poor cashier is like, which button do I press on the machine? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. And they're not thinking like, oh this is a political stance this is a moment but it's not even political it's actually like about defining my child right Um, and so (laughs) oh so, I just want to like go and punch the world right now. I'd like to, I, I can't believe how fast time has gone by. Um, but oh, I, wanted, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to close out our discussion super quick um, with climate change where we began and we never yeah. unpacked it. So, yeah. well, and so, okay. So one way to say this too <laughs> is that you- connect asked, it back to the site, right? Yeah, to, you asked about climate change because that's um, right a major- question of the my most recent book, My Daily Actions, but in part because the book is interested in this kind of time as a flat circle question about like, what do we know when and when is when is dread immobilizing and when is it like telling us something that's about to happen? Like, when mm-hmm. is it, how do you negotiate between this feeling of, of fear that's instructive and how do you negotiate between the fear that's preventing you from doing something? Um, well, and how do you negotiate the people that aren't afraid of it at all? Yes, yes, that is very much the case. The beauty of poetry is that, yeah, it doesn't take that long to read a poem, but it also means that you can go back, you can revisit mm-hmm. it, you can parcel it out. Absolutely, I mean, I carry- I carry books and poems in my backpack for like months after I read them. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate the time that you have given us and what amazing thoughts about poetry and um, all the things. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for revisiting this city of the Marissa, I'd like to kick off this part by asking a question. I think I, I want to key on something that you said earlier. Do you ever write poems about your parents? <laughs> no. Um, oh, oh, that makes you yeah. different. Okay. I think a lot of poets do write about um, their childhoods and their family and, and that there is so much to, to gather there. Um, you know, I guess some of us don't really, um, or would rather not, um, <laughs> you know, or, or kind of, or, or like more interested in the ramifications of that than the like origins or something. Um, but it, I, I guess, I don't know. I've never, it's an interesting thing to consider, but, it, but that there are many ways. I mean, the way I always think about this, like in the, like, Latina, Latinx, um, version is like the cliche of the abuela poem, right? Right. And like, I have one, but it's, it's basically, and it's not a very good, I mean, I know I, I haven't, but it amuses me to write because my, my grandma is a, is a bitch. Right. So like, I can't, <laughs> I can't have that abuela poem. No. That, yeah. You know, and that's, I, and that's, I understand that completely. My grandmother and I had a very capital V complicated relationship. So yeah. yeah. So like there's all these like magic abuela poems and I'm like, my grandma was not, you know, mi abuela was not magic, you know? (laughs) On both sides, both of them? (laughs) Well, my dad's side, which is the white side, she was pretty cool. Um, (laughs) You know, um, 
but not in like a magic way. (laughs) I hate to tell you, not everyone's abuelas are magic. (laughs) Right, but in poetry, you might get you might get confused and think they are right. (laughs) Making is she making tortillas like in the kitchen? You know, and like, I love that for people, you know, those, those poems are important, but they don't capture like all of, you know, Latinx experience or even like, you know, right. for me with my, with my grandmother of like, the like, you know, I blame assimilation. I blame racism in the United States. Like those things like contributed to my grandmother and my mother's misery. Right. So it's another form of, of, of the impact of, of, you know, uh, the construction of, of race and ethnicity in this country um and you know discrimination so i mean i don't i think i was trying to figure out how to say this and i i don't know how to say it well and so maybe i need your help articulating it right but i think there is um not an equivalent but a parallel um kind of relationship between how an assimilation you have to kind of perform a self at mm-hmm. home and perform a self in public that I think can be analogous or parallel to a queer experience. And for those of us that are both queer and immigrants, <laughs> right? I think there can be a sort of a little bit of double trouble there um, in terms of how you negotiate and balance the public and private presentation of self. And then there's like your family private, and then you're like at home private, you know, and then there's like, who's in your bed private. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're ne- constantly negotiating like every level of that. Um, yeah, what do you think? Tons totally off base or? I think there's tons of similarities. I mean, I, I think there's no need to, and I don't think you were trying to do this. There's no need to flatten it and say, oh, it's, it's, it's the same. You know, I once heard, I once, I'm, I won't name names, but I once, um, I once um, a Jewish writer once told a, a black formerly incarcerated writer that it was like the same as being Jewish. And I was like, whoa, whoa. Oh um, my. Yeah. And, and I was, I was sitting at that table and, and again, I won't name names, but I was like, you just said that. Um, and so I think there's a way in which, you know, and I don't oh think you buy the more I think about that, the more there are so many, there are so many things there. And it's and like I, a layer cake of problematic. It was, it was, you know, and it was one of those visiting writer things and, um, the one writer was a visit anyway, so I don't know if um, that writer thought they could say anything. I, I don't, and I'm sure that that happens often. You know, um, how did the how did the formerly incarcerated writer respond to this? Just kind of didn't, you know, um, like I, which you know maybe was the best choice. Um, the per- the person you know was was not without whatever um and and i um i would have said somebody something had i been you know um had i felt it was my place um i I just looked around at every single person's face being like because it was at a dinner and i was like is nobody nobody's gonna say anything (laughs) like like you know because i was i was i was kind of crashing the the dinner so I, i wasn't i didn't feel like i was the person to say anything um and the person had that person had already insulted me earlier oh no so I wasn't I was just trying to leave that person that that um that the the white Jewish writer alone um personally but was there for this but anyhow my point is not that you said anything like that but I think there 
you know, I think there are a lot of similar similarities between the pressures of assimilation and the constructs of, you know, um, the performance of identities, you know, across identities, right? And so like also gender identities. Um, and so, you know, but without like, you know, having to flatten or say they're all similar, but I think there, there, there's interesting, interesting ways that there's, that those things intersect. And I loved how you said like double trouble or triple trouble or like <laughs> yes. they're incalculable trouble, right? Like, which was it? Like, were they being shitty to me because I'm a woman or because they were reading me this way as, or were they, you know, or, or was it, you know, whatever. And, and so a lot of times you're like, was it, you know, there's not just like, was it racist? Was it sexist? Um, or, you know, or even like going back into the self, like, where is my insecurity? Which part of me <laughs> is well, that insecurity or questioning coming from, you know? Well, and I think those questions matter. You know, yeah. um, I was yeah. once talking to a friend who was like, why do you think people are racist toward you when they're just being mean? You know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of had to unpack that for a second and I had to be like, okay, but like, here's the thing, the way I function in the world, right. And the way the color of my skin and the color of my hair and, you know, if they hear me speaking Spanish, um, you know, there is, there are immutable things that cannot be denied or changed, right. About yourself. And so when you feel like that's out there and that's on display and people are judging you for it, right. Uh, whether that's, you know, expression of gender, of your true gender or expression of like, you know, your fashion choices or whatever, like being your true self and you know, it carries consequences because you've experienced harm because of it before. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like Occam's razor. You're just going to go for the easiest explanation, right? You know, which is, this is racism. <laughs> You're not wrong, right? It doesn't have to be racism for you to be wrong or it doesn't have to not be right. I don't, I'm not, I'm going to get it myself in a tangle there, but you know, it, it kind of doesn't, at some point it doesn't intent doesn't matter, you know, in the, you know, as much as, you know, and, and, and you know, and I think some folks, it, you know, it's always so tricky and we're, we all need to be, or are trying to be, and this is what poetry can do. And this is what writing can do is at its best. I hope um, is get into the complications and and question those things and, the, and 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 engage with those nuances, right? So again, you know, trying to come back to Sam's work, um, and you know, and, and this like, you know, an identity formation and identity, and and you know how it continues to, you know, it's never fixed, right? It's an, it's right. continually like this like. Evolving. Identity is fluid, it's shifting. And yeah. it's it's also something that we're constantly searching for, right? Yeah. We're we're constantly trying to define ourselves and to kind of understand that. I mean, the other day I introduced myself as a gardening type. And I was like, <laughs> who is this person that I am now? I'm a gardening type, right? And that's kind of like the dumbest, most superficial expression of that, right? But I'm still kind of figuring out, like, oh, like as I approach 40, like who am I? <laughs> what is my adult self? Like, it's like, it's really all Dragon Ball Z. Am I in my final form yet? Have I evolved to my final form? Yeah. The answer is no, you know, no, no not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and if you have, then, you know, what are you doing? So, uh, <laughs> you know, and so I, 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 um, yeah, in my realm, anyone can be anything going back to Siri. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about um, the way that Sam kind of uses closets and bureaus and trunks and, you know, places that we sort of think of as, uh, you know, cliches regarding coming out um, and kind of sort of like repossesses them and turns them into the physical objects again, but in like this beautiful metaphorical way. Yeah. Like, uh, it's just, old, yeah, moment. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems so delightfully clever to me. <laughs> you know, that it's these storage places that are kind of being used as these, you know, much deeper metaphors. I think it's really cool how poets speak to one another, even though they're not, they don't necessarily know each other, you know, yeah. when like a generation is taking up a question. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think there are, you know, a lot of delightful like trans poets right now finding their voice and finding publishers and finding an audience. And I, I just really think there's kind of a demand for different types of stories and different types of narratives around something that people really think they know, but actually don't. Yeah. And, and then, you know, with that, and, and again, I'm going to fail on remembering some of the names, but, you know, then, then you're kind of this rediscovery of all these poets who, you know, maybe didn't call themselves trans or genderqueer, right? Maybe had different language, but like who have influenced um, poets today and or who are being refound by poets today, mm. right? So that, so that while we are, I think, in um, a better, perhaps, moment for trans poetry um, and for trans poets, um, you know, it's not that, that they've all of a sudden like appear, right? Like like folk, genderqueer. So that right. I, I don't know. I feel like I've also learned a lot, like reading other, reading gender nonconforming poets, reading queer poets, and learning a lot about poets that came before them and who they're in conversation with, um, and sort of, and then this like kind of re uplift, this uplifting of folks past who who maybe did get overlooked or who you know, you got to have somebody tell you their name for you to find out, right? Because it's yeah. not they're. Not they're not like on every, they're not on the you know, top 40 radio of poetry, um, <laughs> top 100, right? Like <laughs> they were like- the idea of the top 40 in poetry. <laughs> oh, come on, there is, we could like sit here and name it. But um, you know, but like, no, nah, they were like, they're like in the like dollar bin stacks, right? Like they're, they're like, <laughs> like, and I don't mean that mean, I just mean like as somebody who like used to collect records, I often put things or not, I, I guess I still do, but as somebody who used to DJ a lot, which I don't do that much, um, I, I often like to um, talk about literary stuff in like the language of, of um, music. And so when I say- No, that I, I get that. My book of poetry is like in the 50 cent bin and believe it or not, it still kind of sells. So yeah. <laughs> I understand yeah. completely. Yeah, poetry is like, it, you know, it's like there's like some one hit wonders. There's like- um, you know, there, there is the top 100. There's yeah, like, some of my favorite bands are obscure indie bands that only not, I really like me and a hundred other people know exist and that's okay too. And it's totally, yeah, it's great. And then there's, you know, there's um, major labels, there's minor labels, there's indie labels. There's like, you know, you well, yeah, I, yeah. Sam got mentioned in New York times is one of the I know. best I know. Notable books. So I, I don't, we're, we're looking here at like maybe like the top, maybe not 40, but I think the hot 100 here. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know, that uh, um, the, the, I mean, it's, it's essential, it's an equates, if we will, to um, the, um, the like um, 
the 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 hot new tracks on Spotify. I can't remember what they call that playlist. Yeah. Hold on. I want to go back really quick before we we run out of time to before we go just into like yes (laughs) before we go into music metaphors forever. Um, I keep thinking about what you were saying about unearthing like queer narratives that existed before, Mm -hmm. right? Like you know, the story about the aunt who lives with her best friends well, you know, well, or her best friend well into old age, right? Or, you know, the- yeah. Oh my gosh, my friends, and, and I want to write a short story about this, but um, um, one of my friends, her her aunt, um, they just called, her aunt's partner, they just called her Uncle Barbara because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as kids and like nobody corrected them. It was just Uncle Barbara because, and that was just the way they processed it. And everybody rolled with it, you know, and it was New Hampshire. Yeah. So like there've always been, you know, queer So I mean, one of, one of my cousins in Mexico city, his, um, like ex person, um, is mixedly, uh, which is, uh, third gender. Yeah. Right. And so in, in, you know, the Yucatan and in, um, you know, Quintana Roo and in like the Southern Mexico, um, there are, uh, old school Mayan traditions, right, yeah. of being third gender, and so you're not male, you're not female, you're this completely other thing, and that narrative has existed for a thousand years. Yep. Right, then- but we don't necessarily discuss it in terms of like queerness or in terms of like the contemporary. And we aren't, you know, taught it but in these like sort of like simplified versions of history that that most of us are given. You so you have to find that stuff and. And search it out and um yeah no and, and there's so many examples you know and i and i really do appreciate um what little i've read of yeah sort of i don't know what we could call queer historians and then you know then you know that lineage of of, of poets and and writers before you know yeah um, but, well, um, they're the queer writers that broke through right like gertrude stein or whatever right uh you know virginia wolf um you know oscar wilde yeah. <laughs> and yeah. who you know, and, and they're open like, secrets and yet are totally beloved by the straights. Yeah. So. <laughs> totally. And then, you know, everybody between those, you know, between, and, and, um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there's, um, and that, that's been really great too. And I think, I think there is, um, there's just something really nice about how, um, how some folks are so willing to recognize that, um, those who came before and to, really get into like the the queer weirdos um as well and i and again i i feel bad that i don't um have a good list off the top of my head here Um, well that's okay you can send it to me we can include it in the show notes so no worries people that you should check out and i know and i appreciate that there's going to be you know some kid out there right now who is you know reading s brooke korfman's work and is able to find in that language and those metaphors and in that beauty, you know, a new possibility. And, yeah. God, and that- also, you know, like even if their, their life or their coming, their like construction of self isn't, you know, heavily traumatic that it, you know, and, and not to say that, I, I, again, not to say at all that Sam's wasn't, but that it, that it can take all kinds of forms, right? Because yeah. I think that that's something you know, when, when we do get even simplified narratives of this is what it means to be trans or this is what it means to be Mexican and then we don't fit into those boxes, that can be troubling because mm-hmm. you're like, well, what kind of trans person am I? Am yeah. I? And there's, and so when, when you have a broader range of what's possible, 
then, um, you know, I think folks, I hope that young people and, and older people can, can, you know, find a safe space sooner um, and, um, and, can, and can feel that who they are and what they're interested in is okay and there's there's room for them so okay i think this is a perfect transition to what are you reading marissa well um considering i joined this podcast from gillette wyoming which is <laughs> not where i live at all <laughs> I live in philadelphia um but is near where my car decided to um stop working um i it feels appropriate to be honest about the fact that i'm not reading any, well, that's not true. I'm reading a couple of things in the moment, but Gideon um, Bible, Gideon Bible in your hotel room. No, no. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I am reading things, but I've actually just been driving and then been dealing with the driving. But what I, I, I don't, I, I only recently started listening to audiobooks on long drives, which is a thing I do like to do. Um, and I am just really, um, really, really loving. Um, I still have four hours left on it, um, but um, of like the 12 or something that it is, uh, Lost Children Archive. It's one of those books that that you, knew, you read or in this case you listen to, and I'm just so excited for her. I just think mm -hmm. she's done such a great job. You know, there's some books I read, and maybe this is the way I read, where I'm like, oh yeah, I could do this. This is great. You know, or like, this is solid you know, I appreciate this. And then there's other books, which is, I would, I would file, file lost children archive in where I'm, I'm just so in awe of what was accomplished. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and kind of the layers of it. And, and also where you're reading it in the last book, I, I read that I had this feeling about, um, it's a very different book, but, um, but where you're reading it and you're, you, you're not done yet and you know, you have to reread it, you know, mm -hmm. that it reward that um and so that's really exciting the last one that I read that um that I would say the same thing about you know you were you were joking about me reading the bible um earlier <laughs> and in all honesty uh that um potential history unlearning imperialism by Ariella Asha Azule um is it's a tome. It's a tome. It is. It is. Um, it is, <laughs> it is the Bible in length. <laughs> it is, it is Bible in length, and it is um, in its in its theory, and it's so it's hard to parse out, but it is worth the effort. And, and what is the title again? Potential history, and then colon. The <laughs> I'm learning imperialism. So it doesn't sound like a great read. I know, uh, <laughs> uh, but. Um, she's brilliant and um, it is, she's just doing so much work. I think it's absolutely, um, it is coalescing so many, I think of it as in conversation with abolitionists, um, PIC abolitionists with um, in conversation with folks like Rebecca Solnit or Robin mm. D. Kelly. Like she's just really, and then, you know, but it's, it's one of those books where you know, almost every paragraph, every sentence, I was like, damn, bitch, like, look what you doing, you know, like, really just like, I'm, I'm like cheering her on. And that's just, it's just a really great place, you know, not, and, and I, I, I appreciate more work than that. But, um, you know, um, it's cool. It's cool. I really like being, because it doesn't always happen, but I really like being reminded of how 
far somebody can go with, with mm. um, and how much can be done on a page and, you know, and, um, but yeah, but trying to get, but I, so anyway, Last Children Archive is probably much more accessible <laughs> for more okay. folks. Well, now I feel weird because like I'm reading, yeah. oh, Was- no, okay. I'm reading Washington by Ron Chernow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, doing, you're doing research. I am not even as like passionate about it. That's, that's, that's okay. I mean, there's, there's always, what else is in my bag? Uh, no, I love a good historian. Honestly, I really do love a good historian. Um, oh. And I really, I really enjoy the weirdest little details, you know, like where he kept his snuff. And like, <laughs> just little tiny things like that. Um, and I really love that George Washington wrote love letters to Martha Washington before he married her while she was married to someone else. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's saucy. Not yeah. a side of George Washington you knew. Young Washington. Sending 20- illicit texts is yeah. what that is. <laughs> You oh. up? Question mark. <laughs> booty calls right there like, i know you're married but but your husband's only like 60 years older than you so he'll die soon yeah <laughs> Don't put me in the queue <laughs> and he was <laughs> it worked out for him. so yeah she she got hers man um and she got be first lady first first lady so she was killing it. Um, and then I'm reading um, Vicky Now's um, new book, which is The Vegas Dilemma. And it's a book of short stories. And um, they're, they're little puzzles that you kind of have to unpack. Um, I'm very intrigued by this book. I'm not done with it yet. So I don't quite know where I'm landing. But they're little short stories. And they're starting to kind of resonate with each other in really interesting ways. Um, so highly recommend. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. So thank you. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa A. Leon. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.